Welcome back to Silhouettes, the fashion history podcast, all about the importance of the clothes we wear. So, the Tudors. Yes, I'm finally doing it. (laughs) The Tudor era ran from 1485 to around 1603 in England and Wales. And this encompassed the Elizabethan era and gave us some of the most notorious monarchs in English history, as well as some incredible fashion pieces and truly some of the most infamous stories in Western history history. So I am definitely, definitely excited to get into this episode. I think it's long overdue on a fashion history podcast (laughs) for me to do a real deep dive for you into Tudor fashion. So the Tudors, let's get into it. If, like me, you grew up in and around London, I'm sure you were and still are being absolutely pummeled by the Tudors. We studied it almost every year at school as well as at uni for me and I'm sure we all know its imagery very very well. For myself I have retained a huge amount of knowledge whether I liked it or not (laughs) on the Tudors and I've made countless visits to Hampton Court Palace and places like that even for a while I was working in their textile and fashion department. So I feel like it would be remiss of me not to do an episode on the Tudors and their iconic incredible fashion choices and everything that encompasses that. Now, as always, very few actual examples of Tudor clothes exist in physical form. I learned this whilst working at the textile department in Hampton Court, where pieces were very coveted and looked after by experts and scientists to basically keep them alive and well. But also, it sort of goes without saying, seeing as just how long ago the Tudor era actually was. These fabrics rot away very easily, and so to find out what Tudor individuals wore, we really have to turn to inventories, poems, diaries and general descriptions from those that would have visited court and things like that and the people that decided to really write down their experiences. We've got paintings as well of course and sketches as well and these serve some function particularly from Hans Holbein who was a court painter at the Tudors Palace at the time period. But as you'll find out in this episode they these are often you know quite sketchy at best pun not intended. <laughs> They're often ahistorical, idealised, falsified or literally painted hundreds of years later from some guy on what he thought the Tudors would have looked like in like the Victorian times, which is just absolutely wild when you think about it. This is why I'll only really be talking about the fashionable and the upper classes. Pretty much all poorer lower class clothing has rotted away and just been used by people with only a handful surviving from probably luck or pure chance. As an example, in 1545, the Mary Rose ship, a famous Tudor ship, sank in Portsmouth in the south of England and the deep mud it set into preserved a great deal of what was on board including clothes particularly leather shoes and jackets and these were found still on the skeletons of just ordinary soldiers and sailors and this was found in the 90s and these are some of the sole surviving pieces from the whole Tudor time period. I know. (laughs) 
Now, of course, sailors and soldiers wouldn't have been necessarily a peasant class, but these are probably some of the only true examples of slightly more lower class, as in not royal or those at court, clothing. So with that in mind, I will be focusing on the upper richer classes, just because that is really what exists and what is documented and painted. But not only are these clothes just a bit more interesting on the whole to dedicate a whole episode to, I think, because as we often see in these episodes, the lower classes would have had extremely basic, very similar clothing. They wouldn't have been decked out in the same way that those with money would have been, unfortunately for them. They're very practical, they're less personalised, meaning there just isn't quite as much to talk about. Of course, they're interesting in their own right, just from a perspective of getting a well-rounded view of the fashion of the era, but in a different way to the upper class lavishness. Like if you were living day to day surviving, I think the last thing you would have thought about was how fashionable you were versus how comfortable, warm and practical your clothes were. So it goes without saying. I also want to say I'm going to be particularly focusing on the era in which Henry VIII was the king, because as I said at the beginning of this episode, the rule of Queen Elizabeth does encompass the Tudor era, but that has its own little name called the Elizabethan era and I want to sort of dedicate a whole episode on just Elizabeth at some point because I think she deserves it (laughs) in terms of fashion particularly. Consider this episode more a time just before Henry was king throughout his time as the king during his infamous era of the man with the six wives and just after so it's sort of that time period that I'm going to be talking about. But with that in mind let's start with the sort of look that would have made you the most fashionable at the time, just as a good starting point. I think it makes sense to begin with a simple glossary of Tudor fashion terms as well, and I found these on the website for the Royal Museum in Greenwich. So let's start. The farthingale, which is a Spanish word, is a skirt stiffened with hoops of progressively increasing circumference, worn as undergarments to add volume to the skirt, or it is a padded hoop worn around the waist to widen the skirts of the hip area, causing the skirt to drape. And this is a very important piece of fashionable clothing as it would have given you the silhouette (laughs) that you would have wanted and would have been the most idealised body shape for a woman at the time. A busk is a thin strip of baleen, whalebone, steel or wood that is worn to stiffen the front of a pair of stays or your bodice. And now this is how you get that really flat, tight corseted look without the use of a later corset. Black work is embroidery using black silk threads on white linen. And this was also a really important part of fashion design at the time, as it would have really given us some of the sort of decorative images that we're used to on these corsets and on the sleeves. And it's a really, really distinctive look. I think using the black silk threads on lighter fabric, and sometimes you would have seen it the other way around too, but this is what makes it really, really Tudor. So a hood or a gable is the pointed headdress, also known as a gable hood, because its shape resembles the gable of a house. It's typically worn with side panels and a black veil. Or it could be a rounded hood worn over a coif, which is a close-fitted linen cap with a jewelled crescent-shaped framework. It's set back on the head, revealing just the front of the hair, and it is usually worn with a veil, but not always. And this is a real staple of Tudor accessorising or fashion. You look up any sort of image of Tudor fashion just (laughs) at the very basic and pretty much everybody will be wearing some sort of distinctive gable. The ruff, as we all know probably, (laughs) is a collar or frill made from stiffened pleats or folds of linen which is attached to a neckband. 
brand. It is often constructed in layers and fixed in place uses heated irons. So let's think about all these iconic individual items. We have busks, rough bolsters, doublets, and these all came together for both men and women to make the most fashionable of outfits in society. Typical, of course, for the upper class. Tudor clothes were, of course, expensive, but also very, very impractical. All of these individual items sort of show you that. The rough, for example, and the gable are just such impractical pieces of clothing and probably made it really hard to do anything. <laughs> Male Tudor ruffs were often more than 30 centimetres wide. And according to a Puritan writer, Philip Stubbs, they did flip flap in the wind and lie upon their shoulders like a dishcloth. <laughs> As we saw with these individual items, accessories were very popular at the time, outfits being perhaps more simple and exemplified by things like ruffs and hats and collars. And hats particularly were very popular, sometimes designed to look like church steeples, which would stand yards off of their head. Now, these items are sort of the basics of what would have made you a very, very fashionable Tudor individual at court. But the trendies of their day, the gentlemen, would have also worn tight, specifically hose, which were pulled over short trousers. Trousers. They were stuffed up sometimes with horsehair to make them poofier, and they were sometimes even cut or slashed to show the expensive layering underneath. And this was a really, really important part of male fashion, particularly, but would not have been worn necessarily by everybody, but by the absolutely most fashionable. And with these, a man would wear a jacket or a doublet and a shirt with big puffy sleeves. It was essentially a very puffy, <laughs> dramatic look that was unrecognizable, like if you walked in the room. And that was probably the intention to take up space and to attract everybody's eyes. There is an image of a poet called Sir Philip Sidney wearing a puffed sleeves and trousers, a typical Tudor ruff, but he has the added addition of a metal collar underneath the ruff, which I would say is a uh, pretty lavish. <laughs> For women, the fashion is what you would expect and focused a great deal on the shape of the body, which um, sort of includes all the individual things I spoke about earlier, particularly the farthingale, which, as I said, was a huge hooped frame, which was very fashionable. And this would also give you a very narrow waist, which was the height of fashion. We see this coming up so much in Western history, the idea of the tiny waist and the huge hips. And I find it really fascinating. And to get this frame, you obviously would have had to have worn some sort of corset or bodice. And this was made of, as I said earlier, stiff whalebone, which would have given you the desired look. The most fashionable women also wore padded backs on their dresses to give them a hugely exaggerated bum. <laughs> and on top of all this would be an intricately detailed skirt or satin dress using the sort of embroidery that I mentioned earlier. Now, this is obviously what would have made you deemed fashionable in court. But there's a really interesting perception towards fashionable people that you see cropping up in this time period. And it's both positive and negative. A poem called Sayers by Samuel Rowlands in the 1600s sums this up quite nicely and it's quite funny. <laughs> As he says, he fits the humours of them in their kind with every month new liveries to their mind. A bisque mask, a fan, a monstrous ruff, a bolster for their buttocks and such stuff. More light and toyish than the windblown chaff as though they were meant to make the devil laugh. So here Rowlands is like making fun of Tudor trendiness and I think that's really interesting. Like they're so silly, they're lavish, they're over the top, so much so it would make the devil laugh. 
And I think reading little things towards about people's points of view towards people like this is just such a nice little view into human beings and how people would have thought and how they're not really so different to us now because I think a lot of people still have this sort of general perception towards the fashionable. Now, this also brings up ideas about religion and fashion, because Puritan individuals who believed in the Puritan ideals of the time period thought that God wanted people to dress plainly and were very scathing towards highly dressed women. One man even saying some women are even not content with their own hair, writing here obviously about wigs, also saying they buy other hair, either from horses, arms or any other strange beasts, and they dye it. Now, how often the upper class actually wore wigs is hard to know, as it is not commonly written about, but clearly it shows that there were some who were and who in fact used to dye them which is very interesting but this also goes very much against the puritan ideals of you use whatever god has given you and that is what makes you sort of deemed worthy in their eyes dyeing and wearing wigs would have obviously completely gone against this ideal and would have made you look extremely lavish and particularly you know not very god fearing now this moves us nicely into the idea of dress codes talking again of the upper class we do have a lot to talk about with strict dress codes but this was quite a strict time period really for all the lavishness in fashions people were highly religious highly socially and politically controlled and there was a lot of things you could and couldn't do so the sumptuary laws were passed in the mid 1500s which essentially is any law designed to restrict excessive personal expenditures in the interest of preventing extravagance and luxury according to Britannica so in 1559 the law was written that no one shall wear any silk in a hat a bonnet, a nightcap, a girdle, a scabbard, hose, shoes or spurs and leathers except for on the heir of a daughter or a knight or on a knight's wife or a man who is worth £200 in goods. So it's a bit confusing but this was ultimately a way to keep people in their respective classes by policing clothing and making sure pol people were politically, socially, religiously in their place. Of course many ignored these laws and it did make in some circles it hard to know who's noble and who wasn't because the Tudor era had a huge, huge textile industry which was developed by trade laws. But ultimately, it's interesting to know that laws were put in place to like police clothes, who was allowed to wear what fabrics in what item of clothing. And I think this also tells us why it was the royals, the knights, the nobles, the lords, people like that, that were seen in these really sumptuous clothes that we're used to seeing and why it's something we're not used to seeing for the other classes because it was so heavily policed and a lot of people just did not have the access to it and were not worth 200 pounds in goods <laughs> so legally were just not allowed but the sumptuary laws as henry VIII saw them were a very important way to enforce social hierarchy and authority as i said four revisions of the acts of apparel also prevented the common people from emulating the court only those in the elite of the social order were allowed to dress in a certain way other than maintaining social order these laws were a way of supporting the home market in particular the textile trade, meaning that only people with money and people with a certain social hierarchy were able to access these things, which again tells us as much as we need to know, really. <laughs> 
Later in Elizabeth's reign, certain aspects of these restrictions were loosened through the growing import market. And that is, I think, why fashion changed a great deal in her reign and was so strict in Henry's. The sumptuary laws also restricted the colours that Tudor men and women were allowed to wear. For example, Henry VIII and the rest of the royal family were the only ones who were permitted to wear purple. And if you know anything about royal history and fashion history, purple is a very, very rarely seen colour. This is why, because for a long, long time, only the royals had the means, the money, and the legal rights to actually wear the colour. However, Henry's key colours we see represented in his portraits are red and gold and black, and a lot of other people, unless they were a certain similar class to him, were not allowed to wear these colours. Elizabeth I also developed a palette of black and white to symbolise her chastity and virginity, and these colours were very specific to her. I think this is really interesting as well. So if you think about the political backdrop at the time and the laws that were being passed regarding clothing, it's very, very controlled and it's very specific to only allow the upper class to access certain things. But as I said earlier, the clothing industry was booming in the Tudor era. era, era and this is particularly because of new trade laws and things that were happening at the time. It is really interesting in terms of the access and policing of Tudor fashion to think about the clothing industry. So a great deal of political upheaval was happening at the time of the Tudor reign, we know that. Particularly Henry VIII's reign, it was very bad at this time. Religion became intricately tied up with politics and policy changes, and religious ideals greatly affected trade and industry, which in turn affected the clothing industry, making it sometimes very booming and sometimes not. And this means there was an increased anxiety about dealing with general standards, and this led to the passing of a law which enforced seven-year apprenticeships on anyone intending to become involved in the manufacturing of high-end woolen cloth. However, in 1553, rural towns were exempted from this rule. And so ultimately, the mid-Tudor period saw a recession in the rural textile industry, whereas in towns, guild members produced highly expensive and well-finished material, and their training was very long, and the quality control was very high. And each process had its own guild, which is something we did not see in the rural industries, meaning lower quality, cheaper fabric and clothing was nowhere near what people in the upper guilds were experiencing. However, clothiers in the country without training and apprenticeships operated sizable business still, which had very little quality control and no guilds for each specific manufacturing processes. These industries later struggled to keep up with the new tastes and wanted, especially in Europe and the Netherlands actually, to ensure they were making clothes that they could make a little bit of money from. But they saw a recession in the rural textile production market, which lasted until the 1570s. And all this is to say the upper class, as always, had access to the textiles created by these highly trained individuals of the guild who were working with more skill, access to better and different materials, and generally were less affected by political turmoil due to their training and skill. And anyone accessing more rural markets would only, as we still see, really have access to fundamentally basic textile needs. I got a lot of this from a book called The Mid-Tudor Years by Jocelyn Hunt and Carolyn 
downhill, which is really, really interesting. So with this in mind, everyday people would have worn simple outfits that did combine textiles as much as those at court, as you'll find out. Women would have worn ruffs, but these were not very elaborate, and servants would have worn aprons and simple cloth gowns, as well as a type of hat called a captain, and these would have been made from the very, very cheap rural textile industries. There is an image from a description of England that shows us some examples of this. It shows middle-class women alongside their servants, and it's really interesting. Also, as I alluded to earlier, some of the clothes found on the Mary Rose were those of this middle class and included items like leather jerkins, which are sleeveless top, as well as some leather mittens, leather shoes, and a velvet hat. The jerkin is a hole-punched decorated leather shirt, often with heart or star motifs that has pewter buttons. And I didn't include it in the list before because it would not have been worn by the upper classes, but would have been worn by the sort of middle sailor class like we're seeing from the Mary Rose. There is also a stained glass window at Oxbridge Hall in Norfolk that shows an image of a husband and wife at home. And this is quite an invaluable source in terms of being able to see some middle class merchant families' day-to-day fashion pieces. But as I said right at the beginning of this episode, these things are really, really hard to find. And so the information is limited, particularly in terms of visuals. And so you sort of have to piece together this political backdrop of what I was talking about earlier with the surviving examples and piece together your own sort of generalized, educated guess imagery of what middle-class people would have been wearing. And this is completely different to our knowledge of the upper class because much more visual examples of this exist. Court fashion was heavily influenced by the key players of the Royal Tudor Court. The wife of Prince Arthur and then his younger brother Henry VIII, Catherine of Aragon made her mark on the dress of English Tudor ladies and she is a very important individual when it comes to upper class court fashion and the changes that were made and things that were seen as idealised. But particularly the elaborate costumes worn at court are some of the most interesting examples of Tudor fashion. As I said earlier, these were over-the-top lavish outfits with mixed textiles, textures and shape as they did not have to legally... not mix textiles or wear certain fabrics. They could have basically do whatever they want and they would have been complicated to create, design and ultimately difficult to wear. (laughs) Noble women wore a very specific code of dress that included smocks and shifts underneath a stiff whalebone corset, as I said earlier, with a headdress called a gable or a kennel. And these are seen worn by Jane Seymour in her most famous portrait painted by Holbein. And this is a very invaluable piece if you want to get a really strong visual of all these individual items coming together. She also had large sleeves that billowed and cuffs on her sleeves that were often pinned down to show the inner sleeves, which is really interesting. The front of court dresses, the skirts, were cut into a V shape, which would have revealed embroidered textiled skirts underneath. Women also wore stockings that came to the knee and these were held up with ribbon. So the Tudor era, the upper classes particularly, really liked this idea of mixing textiles with lace, beading and velvet and embroidery. It's also this interesting idea for men and women of showing the different layers of your clothes to reveal all these different textiles. So as I said, with the trousers that would be slashed so you could see the fabric underneath and on top, you had the same thing for women with their skirts. You would have had the underskirt and the overskirt. And I think the fact that you could wear all these different textiles together, you had so many different layers, showed people that you did not have to stick to the laws that were in place and you were of the upper richer classes. It was all about showing off. I spoke about the Farthingdale earlier, but it was Catherine of Aragon who I just mentioned, Henry VIII's first wife and his brother's first wife. (laughs) 
drama there. She introduced the Spanish farthingale to the English court. It was an undergarment which gave structure to the wearer's skirt and it was her that brought it into the English and made it so popular because she probably looked amazing in it. <laughs> so from around the 1580s, the adult Elizabeth I also popularised the drum or the French farthingale. And this exaggerated the female silhouette even more than what would have been worn in Catherine's day and was designed to display as much expensive fabric as possible with the skirt's numerous pleats and would have supported up to three metres of fabric. I can't even fathom how heavy some of these clothes must have been. It's why women would have just sat pretty and not been able to do much else because their clothes were just so elaborate and heavy and impossible to move in. The bone structure looked like a wheel extending out from the waist, which occasionally had a bum roll to make it more comfortable to wear. And a busk would sit down close to the body and really push up the back. So that's what gives us this sort of bizarre, exaggerated skirt-like shape. Speaking of skirts, dresses would have also been worn. Sometimes it would have been two separate pieces. Sometimes it would have been a whole dress. But the bodice and skirt of a woman of the Tudor court would have been made from such exquisite fabric and embellished with precious jewels, ribbons and lace. And parts of the linen shift undergarment would have been visible, as I said, around the neck and on the calf. Particularly in dresses, you would have seen these different layers. Catherine of Aragon set the trend of revealing black work embroidery on these parts of the shift, which was followed by the female Tudor nobility. So again, she really like pioneered some of these things that became staples in upper court fashion. And the black work that I mentioned earlier was one of them. 16th century women of this time also wore linen caps under their elaborate headwear, which developed in style throughout that century and made its way even into Elizabeth I's reign. Catherine of Aragon wore the English hood or gable with its distinctive triangular framing of the face. And as the second wife of Henry VIII, Anne Boleyn popularised the French hoods with a softer shape. So here we see one queen introducing something and another queen sort of taking a new element of it and popularizing that and this development is really interesting because I think to a lot of people the queens are very separate entities but actually they feed one into the other based particularly on fashions. Jane Seymour even, wife number three, reverted back to the English hood as a political move away from the image of Anne Boleyn. So we see Catherine of Aragon bringing in, popularizing this English hooded shape. Anne Boleyn saw softening this to make it more in the French style and Jane Seymour going back to the original roots of it as a political stance. And this is why fashion particularly in these older time periods, is just such an important piece of history and is usually just, is not appreciated in the way it should be. The fact that Jane Seymour was taking a political stance was so powerful and probably the only way she would have been able to have any power like this would be through fashion and you see her doing it. It's just absolutely fascinating to track the way these women were making their stances, having some power socially, politically. The hoods in the Tudor era is really interesting thing to track because each wife has their own take on it and each one tells us something we need to know and yeah it's just really fascinating <laughs> to me from the wives we'll talk a little bit about men the men wore rich white silk shirts frilled at the neck and wrists and over this they wore a doublet which is like a tight fitting jacket and a close fitting striped trousers called hose this i did mention briefly earlier now the heavily starched and elaborately pleated ruffs were fashionable throughout this period and often a specialist laundress was employed to clean the ruffs daily and that would have been her job <laughs> so this shows you how important individual items like this 
case were at court. If it was not the right size, the right shape for your class or your nobility standing, it would have been wrong and they had to be cleaned in such a way that you had to hire a whole individual person just to to do this for you, which if that doesn't tell you how important clothing was, particularly at this time period in court, I don't know what does. But men's clothing, particularly a bit more than women, changed over time depending on technical advances. For example, home heating devices became better and better over this time period and woolen clothes were less necessary, particularly for men. And this saw a shift to new materials along with, you know, the new trading that I mentioned earlier, like silk and satin and jewels. And this is a lot of what you will see as woolen gowns are far less elaborate to paint and you get the sort of velvet doublets and velvet dresses even becoming more popular because wool was a lot less necessitated. The kind of development of these advances did, of course, change fashion. And you wonder how fast it would have developed and whether our image of the Tudor costume would have been quite as iconic as it is if these background advances had not happened. to go a little bit back into the kings and queens and I am going to talk a little bit about Elizabeth. Now she's obviously an icon and has given us a huge array of amazing Tudor fashions to talk about. Her dresses were often encrusted with precious stones and once she even wore a white silk gown embroidered with pearls the size of beans according to a period description of someone who visited her court at the time. Now the Tudors ended with Elizabeth I and the Stuart era progressed and various kings would influence male fashion. For example Charles II brought in the three-piece suit and Slashing was a practice, as I mentioned earlier, and these would be slits cut on the other materials that would allow you to pull the lining under to expose it. And this carried on through the Tudor period into the Stuart era. But really, it was the Tudor era that established this way of wearing trousers because it would show the fabric underneath. A painting of Henry VIII by Holbein shows how elaborate this would have been as it is done all the way up his legs in small little slits decorated with gems and pearls. And this image is actually interesting as it shows just how gaudy men's clothing could be as well as women's. Something we see happening in these later periods that slowly I think lost its way in the early 1800s where men's clothing became much more simple. He's also wearing a gown of velvet embroidered with gold cord and lined with real fur and his doublet is encrusted with jewels and embroidered just to the nines. If you just take Henry VIII for example as his own piece of evidence he really shows how elaborate clothing was for all upper classes, all genders, everybody. And jewels and embroidery and fur and velvet was such a huge part of Tudor clothing, but was only something available from upper classes. And that is really why I think these images have stayed so much in our consciousness and are so incredibly recognisable. Now, talking of royals, I had to talk a little bit about Anne Boleyn. Anne Boleyn is probably, if not the most famous Tudor royal in England, if not one of the most famous royals as a whole. For example, her necklace with the large B is so iconic and put together with her structured Tudor gable, her distinctive silhouette and the dark colouring she often wore. She is really a symbol of Tudor era fashion. But I want to get into that a little bit. It's actually very muddy waters when it comes to Anne Boleyn and her portrait and particularly her fashion because a lot of what she wears sums up what was popular for Tudor people at the time. Now this is something I was never taught in school but learned later from my own research because none of her famous portraitures are actually come from the Tudor time period. I know, none of them are contemporary pieces. 
I think for many, she is the first image people conjure up when they think of the Tudors, for me at least, followed really probably by Henry. She is an icon. She had that famous necklace. Her image is plastered in books, in films, in TV. But as according to the National Portrait Gallery, no contemporary painting of Anne survives. And so in fact, we actually have no real idea of what she looked like or what she wore, and very little about her famous piece of jewellery. Now, her most famous portrait is probably a copy of a likeness taken during her brief reign. It's possible that images of her were deliberately destroyed in the same way that her heraldic devices were removed from the royal palaces after her execution. So all the images of her exist based on copies of ones that were original at the time, but these have been destroyed because, you know, she was she had a head chopped off. But that is like me painting a portrait of Queen Victoria, for example, never having seen her, met her, and not even being alive during her reign. But the portrait that I've created is being taken as gospel for what she looked like and what she wore, which is just wild. <laughs> but if you look carefully at every portrait of Anne, she's in the same position, wearing the same clothes, has the same expression. And these are all likely later versions of copies of the same picture, just redone and redone by new people each time, like a chain reaction in which all are copied from the same potentially untrue picture. And it becomes impossible to know what the original would have looked like and what Anne herself looked like and what she actually wore and whether her clothing was as iconic and copied by the other queens as much as we think. However, Berlin was described by contemporaries as having a long neck, a wide mouth and with eyes which were black and beautiful. And we know, for instance, that she was rather tall by 16th century standards. And so many of her portraits were based on letters and other descriptors of her from the time. The portrait has really undergone structural conservation following a successful fundraising campaign. And so we have a little bit of a better idea now. And most of her portraits are in the collection of the National Portrait Gallery in London. And these are the people who have been spearheading the conservation of some of these portraits to get maybe a better idea of where they came from and what she would have looked like. There is also a hand sketch done by Hans Holbein, the famous Royal Tudor portrait artist of the time, that is thought to be one of the most accurate depictions from the era. Many historians such as John Rowlands have credited this picture as being probably the most contemporary image of her. It matches all the accounts that exist of Anne pretty much to the letter, as in the drawing she has a swollen neck and a double chin, which is an extremely specific detail and one which leads people to believe it is the most accurate. As many accounts of people that visited court during Anne's reign from France and Spain and things like that, diary entries, as I said earlier, explain her having quite a swollen neck, which is very specific and quite interesting. However, many of the accounts of Anne, particularly this French one that is sort of the most referenced, are not kind ones, purposefully so. And so it's difficult to know whether the fact of her having a swollen neck was said to be cruel or was truth. And in this image done by Halbein, she's wearing, she's basically in a state of undress. She's in her underclothes, which is strange to see for a royal portrait, especially if she was queen at the time of it being done. Particularly as Anne was known to be a very fashionable woman who was interested in jewellery and wearing the best clothes. There's also a small detail of something yellow or gold, either along or underneath her hat, and it is unknown as to whether this is a gold trim, which would make sense for the queen, or blonde hair, which would then make it unlikely to be Anne because she 
famously was very dark in colouring. However, despite the confusion of this portrait, there is an inscription on the bottom written that states Anne Boleyn Queen, added by a man called Sir John Cheek, who knew Anne, and Boleyn is spelt B-O-L-L-E-I-N, which is quite interesting. It's also possible that she was pregnant at the time of this portrait being done and had commissioned the drawing to commemorate that, which is why her neck was swollen, as this does happen in pregnancy, and why she was in her night clothes, as it was a personal drawing and not for the public eyes. And she may have been in her confinement at this time, which is when months before the pregnancy, women would not be allowed to dress, they would not be allowed to leave the castle, and usually not even allowed to leave their own rooms. The only definite commemorative image comes from a royal medal, which was never destroyed and was made when she became queen. And this is likely the basis for most, if not all, the portraits done of Anne, and was, as we know, it is definitely a contemporary piece. If you compare the position of her on this coin, it is almost identical. It's like a little metal engraving of her. It's not used as a coin, but it would have been used to commemorate her as a royal medal at her time of queen, as queen. And the fact that all of these royal portraits done afterwards are based on a tiny coin-shaped image made of metal shows how ahistorical they just may be, because you can't really create something particularly based off of real life, based off of what's on a coin. You know, they didn't have the engraving technology that we have now, and so it would have been done by hand and would have been just kept for the family. I found a fabulous video online from Royalty Now Studios that goes into this in a lot more detail and in a very visual way, in a way that I'm unable to do here. So do check that out. Royalty Now Studios, it's fabulous and so enlightening and really helped me in my, you know, knowledge of the portraits of Anne. want to talk about a podcast called Talking Tudors as this makes some interesting points about Anne and how fashionable she was but also the myths surrounding her rags to riches story that is just in fact that a myth and in fact her eventual achievement of Queen was a slow trajectory stepping stoned by her ancestors through advantageous marriages and this might explain why she was seen as such a fashionable individual because she came from a lot of money she came from a very upper class family even though a lot of the story around and is a rags to riches one. I think it's just something people like to think about, isn't it? <laughs> and it comes a lot from, as I said, advantageous marriages, acquisition of property, and other similarly useful money tools that put her in a fairly high position by the time she met Henry. And as you know, her sister was also Henry's mistress before Anne was even in the picture. And so she's a really interesting individual in the Tudor times in terms of mythology and storylines surrounding her, which links nicely to what I was just talking about with her portrait. And there so many myths about Anne Boleyn, among them that she had six fingers, that she was a murderess, even that she was Henry VIII's own daughter. And as it happens, her fashion is mythologised to be this highly fashionable Tudor individual based off the portraits that we have. And this just feeds into all the myths about Anne and it's really impossible to know what her truth was. However, as I mentioned earlier, Jane Seymour did adopt the English style of headdress as a political stance against Anne who famously was known to wear the French style. And this gives us a little hint into the fact that perhaps some of her portraiture is more truthful than we think because this is seen displayed very visually. But also maybe this knowledge was just known by the people creating the portraits and so followed suit. It's really impossible to know, but it gives us this really sort of mythologized image of the Tudor fashion, particularly because Anne is one of the most iconic, famous individuals of the time period. 
Tudor fashion is really, really fascinating. I think it's iconic because it followed this particular rule of the individual pieces that you wore and very few people strayed from this, even the royals. You would have had all your individual accessorized pieces, particularly the hats and the ruffs and the trousers, which made up the Tudor look. And this would have been followed very rigorously by everybody and means there was very little difference between individuals. And I think that's what allows Tudor fashion to be very memorable because we see it, we know exactly what it is, what time period it's from. And also, as I said earlier, only certain people were allowed to play with this style of fashion, were allowed to wear certain fabrics and textiles, and only people had access to jewels and velvet, meaning we've got a very small number of portraits and pieces of evidence to tell us what Tudor people were wearing, and very little based on anyone other than these upper classes. And so we have this image of Tudor fashion that is very supplanted just in our consciousness of the upper classes, the royals, the nobles, the knights and things like that. But I think that is what makes it recognisable because you're not bombarded with huge, huge numbers of different types of fashions. You just have this one very distinctive image for men and women. And that has what has come to sum up our idea of the Tudors. I also think with the Tudors looking into the background of the politics, the political landscape. I mentioned a little bit about trade, but it's not a very nice history, so it's not something I wanted to go into too much. But it's undeniable that it really did completely define Tudor fashion and the things that were available, the colours that were available, the jewels that were available, the textiles and things like this. And I think this is the first era that we see, maybe slightly inspired by more medieval fashions, that different textiles were really played with and you had all these individual pieces coming together and everything was so lavish and put together and thought about and it just makes it such a incredibly memorable era for fashion and I can completely understand why people say it's some of their favourites. Anyway, I hope you learned a little bit from this episode. It was quite a difficult one to write because there's a lot to talk about, but also not that much to talk about. (laughs) It's kind of tricky because we all know what Tudor fashion looks like and we all know what Anne Boleyn looked like, probably, and Henry VIII. But there's a lot of background to this and a lot of political upheavals. But fashion didn't massively change, but it did in terms of small ways, like I was saying with the gables, the headdresses by the queens. And the politics of the fashion of this time period are really interesting in terms of what was allowed and what was not allowed. I hope you've liked this more deep dive style episode. There will be more. (laughs) So keep your eyes and ears peeled for that. Subscribe to Silhouettes, a fashion history podcast on places like Apple Podcasts and you'll see when a new episode comes up. Follow me over on Silhouettes, a fashion history podcast on Instagram and let me know what you thought of this episode. Let me know if there's anything I missed out. Let me know if you knew about the stuff about Anne's portraits because I think that's really interesting in terms of our fashion knowledge. And yeah, I just like to chat to you. So head over there if you have anything you want to say to me, but only nice things, please. <laughs> Constructive criticism as well is fine. I'll take that. I'll always take that. Just don't be mean. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. I hope you've had a lovely time and I'll see you in the next one. Stay fab, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>